Hi again. I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer, and you're listening to another episode of the Observer podcast. It's produced by the magazine's editorial department, and in each episode, we bring you some of the best stories and interviews from the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors. For the next little while, we'll hear from author and human rights advocate Joan Chittister and Fort McMurray wildfire evacuee Reverend Donnelly Williams. But first, I'd like to share one of my recent columns with you. For a variety of reasons, last spring was a slog for me and my wife. By the time July rolled around, we were more than ready to make tracks for the cottage. We can always rely on a couple of weeks there to transform us. This time around, however, the transformation felt a little tainted. It was as if the outside world had found a way to sneak through the building's old timbers. Our cottage time coincided with a litany of bad news. In the course of two weeks, terrorists hacked to death 20 hostages in a restaurant in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Suicide bombers killed 200 people in Baghdad. Police shot and killed unarmed young black men in Louisiana and Minnesota. Five police officers were killed and six others injured in a sniper attack in Texas. Hundreds were killed in fighting between government and opposition forces in South Sudan. Eighty-four people were killed and hundreds injured in an ISIS-inspired attack during Bastille Day celebrations in Nice, France. More than 300 people died and 50,000 were detained in a failed coup in Turkey. And a former U.S. Marine ambushed and killed three police officers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Add to all of this Donald Trump's looming coronation as the Republican presidential nominee in the U.S., and it seemed like the world beyond our cocoon had taken leave of its senses. By the end of those two weeks, I felt like throwing the radio into the lake. It wasn't until I returned home that I stumbled on a story that had been mostly overlooked amid the deluge of bad news. In the first run of a partially completed super telescope, astronomers in South Africa discovered 1,300 new galaxies in a corner of the cosmos where previously only 70 were known. They released images that showed hundreds of galaxies in various states of development or decline suspended in the blackness of the distant universe. The South African telescope will eventually be linked to a global array of radio telescopes. So this summer's remarkable images were a tantalizing foretaste of more marvels to come. The section of the universe captured in the images represents less than one one-hundredth of the visible sky. There are hundreds of billions more galaxies waiting to be discovered. Each one is made up of billions of solar systems and untold planets. The images underscore how incredibly small Earth is in the wider scheme of things, and it will only get smaller with each new universe-expanding discovery. You'd think we Earthlings would conduct ourselves in ways that reflect how puny and isolated we really are. Practically speaking, this pinprick of a planet is all we have until something comes along to prove otherwise. Yet our lack of self-awareness is stunning. Instead of being humbled by our teensiness, we are dissolute and arrogant. Instead of being united in our remoteness, we are mortally divided. Remember that iconic 1968 photograph of Earth rising over the moon's horizon? Astronaut William Anders' picture was widely credited with helping to kickstart the modern environmental movement. Seen by enough of us, 
the spectacular images astronomers will deliver in the coming years might also have the power to change how we view our planet and each other. Perhaps it may even restore some sanity to our troubled patch of the universe. I don't get up in the morning to rebel against anybody or anything. Never mm -hmm. have, never did. But I do believe that my obligation is to take positions on, on important questions that, that somehow or other um, reflect the whole tradition and not just a 19th century tradition. You're listening to Benedictine nun Joan Chittister who's been a passionate advocate for church renewal and human rights for 40 years. The author of more than 50 books, Chittister now serves as the co-chair of the Global Peace Initiative of Women. She recently spoke to observer contributor Nancy Fornasiero about the biggest challenge facing the Catholic Church and what she calls the electoral tsunami in the United States. What I'm doing is exploring. Mm. That is the spiritual dimension. I'm exploring the idea, both in me and around me, and asking the questions, why is this idea important? What will this mean to anybody else? What, what does this mean to me and thee? I don't, I don't uh, move myself into massive levels of research of, uh, on other people's research on the subject. Mm -hmm. I read a lot. I'm a, I'm a communication theorist and social psychologist by, by training. I love both fields. So I'm, I'm bringing a lot of that along with Benedictine spirituality and, and a commitment to a, a, a life committed to spiritual development. I start with a topic mm -hmm. and, and I ask myself what I know about it, what I don't know about it what I think about it, what I have never thought about it, um, what other people think about it, and how I respond to those ideas. It's a mining process for me. Mm. It's not a reporting process. That's the difference between the kind of writing that I do and the kind of writing that a journalist does. Right. I, I'm just, I, I just am there to rip open this veil so that I can legitimate uh, the right of other people to explore what we're told we may not explore. There is no separation okay. between justice and theology, none. If it is, your theology is sick. If, if the cause that you're dealing with is, is in anywhere looks like one of Jesus' mistakes, you're in good company. Accurate, well, I dissented I guess. from um, the notion that anybody can tell you that you're not allowed to pursue a subject, to think about a question, mm -hmm. or to, um, to examine an issue from another position. Mm -hmm. I will always dissent against that. Okay. Because our highest, the highest quality we've been given uh, is is uh, rationality. We are responsible for the positions we take. We have an obligation. Uh, blind obedience is blind, and it's not obedience. It is it is at best um, 
difference. But that we have a responsibility to make moral decisions, and that morality uh, can't be somebody else's morality. It 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 requires our our relationship to to a higher law. If religion is religion, mm -hmm. if religion has anything to do, uh, if Christian, if Christianity has anything to do with the model of the, of the scriptures, then we must take the woman's issue seriously. I mean, you, you are in the first place. You're talking about decisions being made by half the human race, half mm -hmm. our major decisions. What's that mean? It means that we are hearing with one ear, we are seeing with one eye, and and uh, we are deciding things with half a brain, and it shows. Yes. Look at the headlines in the paper. Look what they do every day. There are no women sitting at these chairs mm -hmm. saying, you cannot do that to that village. Do you realize that that village is, is now, all the men are gone. It's 73% women and 65% children. You mm -hmm. cannot go in there and carpet bond that place. You have to figure out another way to do this. Right now, at this point, this, this electoral uh, tsunami, it's a, it's a stunning moment. Uh, I never, I, I, if you had asked me six months ago, what do you think the next election will be like? I would say, well, the Republicans are going to be concerned about these things, and the Democrats are going to be concerned about those things, and, and uh, making the case to the people about which has priority, you know, is, is their responsibility. Mm -hmm. I would never have dreamed that anybody would get up on a stage and begin to systematically uh, uh, destroy both the Gospels and the Constitution. I couldn't imagine it. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine in a pluralistic society that you think, I mean, you have an ethical responsibility, but that you think uh, that either you can impose your morality on other people or you can simply ignore everybody's morality at once. That you, that you have no responsibility to raise people to a higher level of humanity. And, and when you begin to, to, uh, to run for office on the basis of division, these people are out, these people have to go, this is what you have to think in a pluralistic society. Mm -hmm. The United States of America, that prides itself on the fact that, that under one constitutional umbrella, by, by the very fact that we never established a national religion, that we could honor all religious beliefs and allow them simply to function within the ethical framework that says thou shalt do no harm mm -hmm. to the other. And all of a sudden, to see people flocking to hear harm in the name of good, harm done in the name of good. Well, I happen to believe that it was interesting at the time of the last election, and I want to be very honest with you, I was a Hillary supporter in 2008 mm -hmm. uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, her competence, her experience, what I see as her 
bedrock honesty about ideas and, and movement. Whether I'm right or wrong, I, I, I mean, that's where I was. Mm-hmm. And I saw Barack Obama as a very fine young man. I, I liked him like everybody liked him. Uh, I was not an enthusiastic supporter of his uh, presidential hopes at that time because, frankly, I didn't think he had enough experience mm-hmm. to go into the job. But, recently, but I think yeah. the country, well, I think the country was right in identifying his goodness as a human being and his heart. I think there was something in the national DNA mm-hmm. that, for lots of reasons, wanted this racism thing to stop. I even said at that time. Yeah, well, this is wonderful to see this support. I wonder what support we'll really get when they go into a voting booth alone. But it didn't happen, did it? No, the racism happened the day of the inauguration. The racism has been covert Mm -hmm. for eight years. The lack of respect, the demeaning of the man's willingness to negotiate, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So now we flip the coin. And we see a, apparently a sizable portion of the population of the United States perfectly willing to exclude, to suppress, uh, to deny, to destroy the very principles upon which this country has been built. And my heart says, I still believe that the American public is not going to allow this. That was our conversation with Joan Chittister. Her latest book is Get Two Dogs and a Parrot, and it's published by Bluebridge. On the 1st of May last spring, a wildfire broke out southwest of Fort McMurray, Alberta, leading to the largest wildfire evacuation in Canadian history. Roughly 2,400 homes and buildings were destroyed, making it one of the costliest disasters ever in Canada. When the order came to evacuate her own house, Reverend Donna Lee Williams was in utter disbelief, but ready. Here, Williams reflects on the true meaning of the word home. Have a listen. On evacuation day, May the 3rd, I couldn't believe until the very last minute that I would have to leave my home. That morning, the Alberta air smelled much less smoky than it had the day before. I even went into work for a few hours at Fort McMurray First United, where I serve as minister. But by early afternoon, I saw the red and gray plume punching into the sky. I also noticed flames in the distance as I drove back across the Athabasca River to my home. Hours later, I stood on my front lawn. I was shocked by the blood-red sun behind clouds of smoke and ash, the low-flying water bomber too. A couple of friends whose neighborhood had already been evacuated came by. We turned on both the TV and the radio, watching and listening for evacuation news. My spouse, Ian, rushed around packing. The idea of leaving my home didn't really sink in until I went upstairs to collect a few precious photos. Then my stomach turned into a fist. When the order to evacuate the entire city was broadcast just before 6.30 p.m., 
we were ready. The four cats in their crates, the car loaded. I walked through the house for what I thought might be the last time. I said a silent farewell to each room, each safe place, each enfolding wall. Once in the car, we joined the bumper-to-bumper -bumper exodus. It took an hour and a half just to reach the city limits and almost five more hours to drive the 300 kilometers to Athabasca, Alberta. That's where friends were waiting to welcome us. We returned to Fort McMurray on June 7th. Although I had seen satellite photos showing both my house and the church intact, I was still relieved to find both undamaged. The only difference to our home was that it smelled of kitchen garbage and a hint of smoke. Even so, re-entering my house unsettled me. As I stood in the front hallway, everything seemed weirdly wrong. I was so different. But the house hadn't changed at all. It took many weeks to settle back in. Our house had no smoke damage, but the recommendation was to wipe down all surfaces, including the walls. And while the cleaning was tedious, it was also therapeutic. It helped me to reclaim my home. So many in Fort McMurray haven't yet returned. Some are on extended vacations. Some have lost everything and are waiting to rebuild. And some will never return. Every day is like living in a continuum between settled and unsettled. It's like a table that is cleared, wiped, and then stacked with stuff from other rooms waiting to be put away. But a little more each day, I'm finding my own way back home. Donna Lee Williams is a minister at First United Church in Fort McMurray. been listening to the Observer podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org. 
where you can also find links to everything we talked about in this episode. Also, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at UC underscore Observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, Managing Editor Jocelyn Bell, Senior Editor Kaylee Moore, Associate Editor Shema Benambarak, Intern Elena Gritson, Senior Writer Mike Milne, Art Director Ross Wolfert, and Digital Content Editor Kevin Spurgaitis. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. That's all for now. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the coming months. Catch you next time.